don't trust anyone. No one has everything 100% right and plenty of people have everything 100% wrong. You got to seek out different opinions. Always keep learning, stay humble and stay skeptical. More importantly, just always verify claims. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. We welcome our guest today, Ariel Deschapelle, a full-stack developer and writer. Now, in addition to being a Coindesk contributor, his work has been featured in other publications like Money and Tech, offering fresh perspectives on cryptocurrency and society. His recent Coindesk publication was quite flashy, which caught my attention. It's titled, Strip Clubs, Lambos, and Code, A Tale of Two Bitcoins. My name is Deng Du. I'm co-host for today. And the other co-host is... Jeff Peterson. Dang, it's, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. And since you haven't been a co-host on here before, could you please introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, sure. So, I'm a cryptocurrency writer. I started off my career writing a really wonky material like economic memos, and those kind of things. The main audience were government bureaucrats and those kinds of circles in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. I'm actively writing now for different blockchain projects. So it runs a gamut, everything from pitch decks to white papers and blogs. I actually write the show notes for this podcast. But when I heard Ariel was going to be on the show, I thought his background may be pertinent to me. But I'm excited to set the stage, though. I, I wanted to ask Ariel, what is uh, your background? And how did you first get into crypto? Yeah, for sure. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. I like to talk crypto every chance I get, which is pretty much every day nowadays. <laughs> You're an addict. Um, yeah, I'm one of those. So, I've been uh, in the space since 2013 and I actually started as a writer like you, Dang. Basically, uh, I got into crypto more from the economic side of things. I'm a full stack developer now, but I was studying econ and finance in school. And I kind of just got very interested into the monetary theory of it as I was reading about it online and then only slowly started getting into the development side as I developed that skill set uh, coming out of school. But basically, I started my career in the space in Coindesk. As you said, I'm a regular contributor there. Uh, I started writing for them in early 2014, basically after devouring uh, tons of articles and books on the subject. I just like to read anything that I can uh, get my hands on when I'm interested in something. I basically came to the conclusion that I thought I could write things that were better than what I was finding and not a lot of people understood what was going on in the space. So, uh, I just sent in a piece to Coindesk. They published it the first time, uh, the first try. I sent something in. Essentially, I went from there, yeah. So, tell us about the thought process of making a pitch to Coindesk and getting accepted. What was your thinking there? Basically, and for my first article and then all my subsequent articles, I just pretty much find a topic that I find interesting personally. And I feel can be either communicated or explained or framed better than what the current discourse is. And I just try and exploit that in the kind of style that I have, which is, uh, it's always very personal. I'm not that much of a journalist. I'm, I would actually say I'm a pretty poor journalist. If you, <laughs> if you read my articles, they're more like uh, op-ed pieces and I do cover events. But when I cover events like the conference, for example, and, uh, and that title, I always kind of frame it through uh, my experience and my feelings in the space uh, going back years now. And I try and give uh, my readers that kind of a uh, perspective that I don't think uh, a lot of other people are giving out. I guess that's the only thing you can really write about truthfully, right, is, is your own experience and knowledge. Exactly, exactly. And it's just about being true to that and not trying to fake something that you're not. And that ends up being uh, the best content anyway. It's funny because that's actually the way I ended up becoming a writer for the Huffington Post was I 
a cold email of Ariana Huffington. I actually wanted just to get her to post something on my Twitter, but I told her my story. <laughs> and that was because I was running a crowdfunding campaign. So I was just like, I want to see if I can get Ariana Huffington to post it so I can like see if I can raise some more money. Sure, sure. And she's like, I'm going to make you a writer. I'm like, that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I will take your writership to the Huffington, Huffington Posts. <laughs> Mrs. Huffington. Yeah, I still remember uh, the first day that I saw my first article on CoinDesk. It was super surreal that they actually posted it. And I was just like, oh, crap. You know, my, I guess I'm legit now. <laughs> how does that work as a contributor? What is your relationship with them? Like, how does the process I, go? Yeah, I, I love CoinDesk because they give me pretty much complete total freedom in terms of like, I'm just a freelance contributor. Uh, they have me go to certain events and help them cover and stuff. But generally, it's me proposing uh, what I like to write about. And I'll usually give uh, the editors over there just a heads up of what I'm thinking about. They'll give me some feedback. I write the piece, they edit it, final edit, and it goes up. So, I have uh, pretty much all the leeway I want in terms of what I'm writing about. And when it comes to events, how I write about them. So, for example, that uh, last article I did covering the events here in Miami and just uh, kind of juxtapositioning the conference with the hackathon and the different vibes I saw going on there and the different people there. That was just something that really spoke to me that I want to write about. And they knew I was going to be covering those events, but, you know, someone might expect a more by the books, here's what happened, la, la, la kind of thing where I try and put, you know, add my own narrative to it that's coming from my personal experience. So, CoinDesk is clearly heavily influential. So, what do you think, how does CoinDesk view itself as being in a position in the cryptocurrency world? Uh, is it a, more of a, a media company? Is it a, a social media company? Yeah, yeah. Coindesk is definitely a, a media company first and foremost. It's just a media company that's focused entirely on the space, which is something, I mean, uh, there's so much stuff going on in this space and there has been for years that it's impossible for any one person to keep track of. So, being able to have a reputable news site that's aggregating at least all of this as best it can is something that's tremendously useful. And it's uh, Coindesk, uh, about starting th 2013, became the biggest crypto media site and they stayed number one that entire time through all these booms, which is really speaks to kind of like the talent of uh, Pete Rizzo over there and the other staff that they've managed to stay on top and just turn out, you know, quality content that at least lets you get a pulse of what's going on in the ecosystem. And from there, you can uh, deep dive further. Right. So, do you think it's CoinDesk uh, serves as a model for the kind of uh, reporting, the kind of quality writing and analysis that cryptocurrency is trying to adhere to because um, it's still, you know, this is an emerging market. And so uh, there is still a prevalence of a lot of the uncertainty and misinformation out there. Of course, yeah. And so what do you think Coindesk has a role in pushing for quality standards? Yeah, personally, I think uh, just because of their position that Coindesk definitely has a responsibility to, you know, vet things on a higher level than say just a random blog or something would because a lot of people look to them as sort of you know this authority that if something's published on coindesk then it automatically gives it some kind of legitimacy right and instead of just seeing it in these random little blogs so definitely the standard for coindesk is high and what they should be doing the problem is and it was true when i first got in the space it's true now is that no one actually knows what they're talking about and, you know, we all have our theories and we all have our little, you know, world views and stuff, but uh, it always becomes arbitrary, you know, what line is, oh, this is silly and this is something we should write. People are always going to disagree about the specifics. 
of it also, it's it, you're never going to make everybody happy. And, you know, that's something that they've definitely realized and any large business realize you, you're never going to make 100% of your customers happy or produce something that is going to, you know. So their role is essentially in curating that to some extent and filtering out the garbage. Personally, I think that that could be done better in some senses across the space and Coindesk offers a model to kind of mimic. There's definitely areas Coindesk itself can improve in. And, you know, that's all, those are all details that are up for debate. So far, I think they've done a pretty decent job considering all the craziness that is the space and just how much is uh, flying around. Well said. One of the things that you mentioned that I, I think would maybe make a salient educational point or not. Um, <laughs> we'll see. You mentioned that nobody really knows what they're talking about. Yeah. What do you mean? And could you give some examples? Sure, sure. So, pick who to shit talk on. <laughs> we don't have to name names. <laughs> we don't have to name names. But, but, but I'm, I'm more thinking of like subject matters. Like yeah, what are, of course. What are subject matters or what are specific aspects that people don't really understand? Of course. So, of course, blockchain and crypto in general is this weird thing where it's at the intersection of all these different knowledge bases. And traditionally, before crypto, you never really had anyone who's an expert or even had any kind of deep experience in all three of these things. And now they're interplaying in a way that's extremely novel, that's happening just because of the innovation of the blockchain, right? And this, you know, whole concept of consensus. And people don't have, uh, the way I usually put it is, uh, people try and think through analogy, first and foremost. They try and see something that's similar to this. And in psychology, we call them heuristics, where you use an imperfect model to try and guess to something that's not going to be 100% accurate, but it's going to be good enough to navigate your way in the world in. And people naturally use heuristics to, you know, because life is complicated and you just got to make your your analogies and work with the best you can. So, people tend to take uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain and they try and put it into these pigeonholes they already have for mental models where like, oh, Bitcoin's like AOL or Bitcoin's like TCP and IP. And they try and like fit into this box to help make it easier to think about. And those are all useful to an extent, but they actually break down in their usefulness pretty quickly. So, no one really understands the novelty, the true novelty, I think, of what's going on. We're still all figuring it out as we go. And we all have our little hypotheses and our little, you know, ideas about how things work or how they should work. And a lot of people are being proven wrong, a lot of people are being proven right, both going on at the same time. And really, it's just working from fundamentals and understanding that we're working with something truly unique here that we haven't seen before. And the only way forward is going to be through trial and error. And no one really has it completely figured out. And even if someone does have it completely figured out, we don't know that until the market's tested it and proven that it's the most viable of all the solutions. And again, that comes off through market failure and experimentation, entrepreneurship, all that good stuff. So, we're, we're actively finding out, you know, how all this stuff is going to play out. And anyone who pretends that they know for a fact how that's going to happen, you know, it's just full shit. Yeah, by, by <laughs> definition, a market is a level two chaotic system, meaning that the very prediction of what's going to happen changes it. Exactly. So, exactly. The market's all about uh, information discovery and, you know, sharing what that information is, what works, what doesn't, you know, and uh, price signals. So, it'll guide us long term at the end of the day and just validate who's right and who's not. Right. So, speaking of fundamentals, Bitcoin is the most uh, prominent blockchain and it has sort of an origin story there. It seems like you've devoted a lot of thought and a lot of your publications on the evolution of Bitcoin. For sure, yeah. I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts on, you know, Bitcoin's future and, and where it's going? 
Bitcoin's future and where it's going. That's the he's, big subject. He's like, oh, just let me. He's, he's rubbing his hands. <laughs> I'm licking like, his lips. He's ready. Well, yeah, where can I go with this? I mean, uh, yeah, so I've the vast majority of my articles, especially since the uh, before the last few ones, have been uh, really taking Bitcoin and analyzing as it's grown what the different dynamics have been. And not just Bitcoin also, but, you know, interesting things I, I've seen happen in crypto. So, for example, one article I did. Uh, included Bitcoin, but also uh, the DAO hack and the subsequent Ethereum hard fork that happened and what the implications that were for uh, blockchain governance. I thought that was something that was super interesting and probably one of the more important things to happen in the space. I would say that and uh, the Segwit2x attempted hard fork are the two things in the space that I think have been the most significant and, and significant in terms of uh, impact and you know what it means for what lessons we should take away from it and so on. But basically, the future of Bitcoin is everyone is going to keep on playing with it. It's an open permissionless system and what people come up with, we don't know. And that's the most exciting part about it. We have, of course, the more prominent stuff that everyone knows about, like the Lightning Network, that's the first Layer 2 network that's being built and deployed on top of Bitcoin. But there's going to be other Layer 2 networks and even Layer 3 networks that are deployed on top of that that add more functionality, that add things that we can't think of now. And those are the things that are really exciting, not really creating these services, I think, uh, that we have in the past and decentralizing them, which is what a lot of people seem to be doing, but services that we couldn't, we're ne- we can't think of because they've never been a- enabled until now. And someone needs to go out and invent that. And the infrastructure has to be built before they can do that. So as a developer looking at the space, I know there's a lot of work and a lot of tinkering to be done. And I just leave the, the future very open-ended. Um, I think Bitcoin will continue to thrive as a number one currency. I think uh, at some point we're going to see a lot of value flood back into it from a lot of these tokens when they realize that you can do a lot of the same things on Bitcoin, especially with uh, the new infrastructure that's coming out. And you're going to have to have a really good reason to have a standalone blockchain that's not tied to the one that's the biggest and most secure by hash power in the world. What are some of those new functionalities that uh, you think are going to be most interesting and important for the coming developments? Sure. I would say uh, besides Layer 2 in general, which is you know this giant umbrella, uh, very specifically sidechains. I think this year we're now finally going to see sidechains start taking experimental leaps and then next year I would if I'm going to start making predictions next year we'll see them start taking a prominent role and uh, there's a few different implementations of side chains uh, there's drive chains which is proposed by uh, Paul Stork and he's got a few bips proposed for Bitcoin core in, or- in order to enable that but that's also very controversial could you explain a little bit jumping to people who yeah. aren't necessarily familiar with what is a side chain what is drive chain yeah yeah sure break, so can you break that down with uh, some heuristics for us yeah we'll do that <laughs> I'll do that I'll do my best so uh, everyone knows of course Bitcoin has its blockchain and the entire idea of a side chain is you create the second blockchain now, normally when you create a second blockchain, it does have to have its own coins and we call that an altcoin, right? That's just a that's just a different currency with its own blockchain. But what sets a sidechain apart is these tokens are backed one to one with coins on the Bitcoin main chain. So, you can swap them interchangeably and uh, hopefully in a trustless manner that's, you know, very seamless. So, that way you can take a Bitcoin, send it over to this other blockchain where it's still the same amount of value, but not take advantage of the features of this other blockchain instead of being tied down to it. Uh, Bitcoin restricts you too. So it's like an ERC20 token a little bit, but without its own number of currencies, it's it's like locked to the number of coins with Bitcoin, but you have added functionality. Sure, sure. So ERC20 
20 tokens heuristically are, breaking it down. <laughs> yeah, heuristically breaking it down. They're built on top of like they're basically colored coins, you know, and they're built on top of Ethereum, not their own blockchain. They rely on the Ethereum main chain. So that's why when CryptoKitties exploded, the Ethereum the gas prices, down, yeah. yeah, the whole thing broke down because it's all on the same blockchain. But so, this is completely separate. Where this is completely not separate. Affect. So you it, could run CryptoKitties on a side blockchain. Uh, yeah, on a side chain, and it, it would congest that side chain potentially, but it wouldn't affect the rest of the network. And it'll also still benefit from the liquidity of Bitcoin or whatever it is that it's pegged to as the main chain. So that's, you know, the general concept of a side chain. Drive chain is just one big proposal to enable that. Uh, there's several different ones. I'm working on one right now with a friend of mine here, Miami Ryan. It's called Peered. And we're going to work on, amongst other functionality, enable proof of stake side chains on top of Bitcoin. And proof of stake, of course, is a consensus mechanism uh, that's kind of like the alternative to proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses. And Ethereum is planning to move there long term. I don't like the security model of proof of stake for a base blockchain. I think proof of work is always going to be more secure. But for smaller applications like CryptoKitties, for example, uh, it'll prove plenty secure and resilient. So the idea is that you'll be able to save some trees, maybe. Yeah, save some trees. uh, Using that energy. Exactly. And you you do everything in proof of stake and all the computations technically off chain on the side chain. It's not clogging up the main chain. And you're able to experiment with all of these arbitrary rules that these altcoins experiment with privacy features, smart contract features, whatever you want, but on a side chain that's pegged to Bitcoin. So you get kind of the best of both. You get the experimentation, the functionality and the flexibility, but you get to keep using Bitcoin and you can move it back to the blockchain, the main blockchain when done. And none of that is affecting the main blockchain in terms of bloat or growth problems, et cetera. That is really cool. So just for the listeners out there who are beginners, proof of work is what Bitcoin uses. It's what you hear when you hear of miners. Essentially, those right. are the guys securing the network. They're the ones making sure that all the transactions that happen are, are real. Yeah. And those are the guys who use up a shit ton of electricity. It, <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. Just a bunch of work and for the purpose of work. It's yeah. proof of work. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> But a lot of people argue it's very wasteful and it's bad for the environment. Right. So there's yeah. an alternative proof of stake where essentially... You instead of mining with a of computers with really high hash power, you just put in a shit ton of money, and uh, <laughs> heuristically speaking, uh, I use that word so many times today. I just made word of the day. I love it. It's heuristically fun. heuristic. Essentially, you're you're putting in money as as a way of proving that you have an investment in the network, and and, and then right, all right. It's called staking, and every block instead of in proof of work where it's found by a miner at random who's kind of playing this lottery. It's still this lottery. But instead of the people who are solving these hashes and proof of work doing this work, uh, it's people staking their coins. So they have a stake in the network and they produce the block. And if you catch them cheating, then you take their funds and that's where the security comes from. So they're incentivized to be honest and reproduce the blockchain. And it's just a different model of achieving consensus in a network. So in addition to being a writer, you also focus a great deal on technical development. I noticed you went through the crash course on bit programming, uh, Bitcoin programming with Jimmy Sung. What was that like? Correct. Correct. That was actually uh, my latest article on Coindesk. It just came out Sunday was uh, my takeaways from that. And basically, it was crazy. I mean, uh, Jimmy Sung's a super smart dude. He's super OG. He's been in the space forever. He worked on one of the first uh, Bitcoin wallets. He uh, wrote some of the first unit tests for Bitcoin back in the, de- back in the day. Uh, very good sound engineer all around. 
for the audience, the programming blockchain uh, workshop is something that Jimmy Song hosts. And it's two days long and he describes it as a semester's worth of information in two days. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, was this, it? it was, it was. I mean, th- the best way to describe it is like a fire hose of just information and you're sitting there and then by 3 p.m. you're, you're brain dead and he's still pouring stuff down and you're just like, oh my God. <laughs> and we go, we went, we covered everything from like the very, very, like basically as far low as you can go in Bitcoin down the rabbit hole, we went. And what I mean by that is like learning what the cryptographic primitives are that make blockchain possible and how it all works on the math level. The, the and, SHA-256. Yeah, uh, SHA-256 and uh, ecliptic curves and finite fields and all you, the algorithms you drew those related. by hand on a, on a whiteboard. Not quite <laughs> by hand, but in our computers and we did the math, you know, by hand quotation marks on our laptops and just a simple way and basically built a Bitcoin library from the ground up and seeing how every single little bit of the system actually worked fundamentally. And uh, as someone who's been in the space as a developer for years, I actually got a lot out of it and learning how basically uh, all the magic works under the hood, right? Uh, Web development is one of those things where a lot of things are abstracted away. And what that means is you don't have to know how something works in order to use it, right? We can drive a car and not know how a combustion engine works. That's abstraction. And software, you do that times 10. You're using software all the time. You have no, no idea how it works. But as a developer, you just use the API, you just use endpoint, and it just works. Bitcoin's like that. All good software is like that. So this was about diving in there and actually stripping away the magic and seeing it for what it was. And that's both the potential, but also the very real limitations it has that a lot of people don't think about. So people coming away with crash course, what do people do with that knowledge, with those skills? I mean, do people just get so shell-shocked that they just... (laughs) (laughs) They look at their hands and they're like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Is there an aim here to uh, develop the the next generation of developers? Yeah, no, that's exactly the goal. When it's a very intense course. So people who attend it are expected to be intermediate developers, at least already, and have know they have an interest for that kind of thing. So it's not like something you take to find out if you're into blockchain. It's you know you're into blockchain and you really want to get deep into it. Uh, you take this course. And the goal is, yeah, to make all these developers understand what's going on in their cover so they can go on and actually develop in the ecosystem and contribute to important projects like uh, Bitcoin Core, Layer 2, or any of these other different apps that are being developed. Uh, because training more developers to actually build out all this infrastructure we need to build out is the biggest bottleneck right now for cryptocurrency in general. And that's what uh, Jimmy Song's trying to address and a lot of other people. Yeah, all these projects are so hungry for developers. My, yeah. my brother got like an offer for 500k a year, like even though he when he got this offer, he had maybe like three months of solidity <laughs> experience or four months of solidity Yeah, experience. yeah. I mean, if you have any kind of experience in the space, things are just being thrown at you. I have like, you know, 20 different pitches a week that I have to listen to uh, <laughs> and jobs to turn down. And it's it's a really good time if you're into computer science or programming at all to get into blockchain and start learning the fundamentals, that's for sure. It causes this classic problem in economics uh, called uh, asymmetric information. Sure. With the uh, this extreme shortage in in uh, quality sure, yeah. skill set is needed. You have these HR folks who may not know anything about development, but they're asked to craft um, vacancies and to recruit <laughs> people. But the, uh-huh. when you go through the responsibilities and, and the details of, of these job vacancies, it starts getting ludicrous. Like um, you have requirements at a baseline 
like six, seven years of experience in, <laughs> in uh, Solidity programming. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> when it, Solidity uh, has I existed want... since uh, like 2015. And, yeah. and so as a developer or someone looking for a job or as an HR person trying to recruit uh, uh, people, you know, like one party may know something where the other party does not. You know, how do I prove myself that I'm a competent blockchain programmer? That's a huge problem for people in general who are not or who are new to the space and not familiar with the technology is how do you vet for yourself who's legit and who's not? Because uh, we have this problem with the ecosystem where, as I mentioned before, it's this overlapping of all these different fields and most people just don't have experience in this and that's totally okay and it's totally okay to admit that you don't know what's going on and to come in with an open mind. So the only advice is better to be honest and not brag. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Trust you. <laughs> exactly. If if you don't know what's going on, be honest about it and just say so. And you will have people try and educate you because that's what we've been doing for years. We're we're all you know early adopters. We're all evangelists here, and we do our best you know to educate people and reach out and spread our ideas. So be honest with what you know. Be honest with what you don't know. And when it comes to figuring out who's for real or not and who you should trust, the answer is uh, quite simply: don't trust anyone. I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that says don't trust to verify <laughs> and you know that's an old uh, cypherpunk kind of motto and the idea behind that is listen out to what everyone has to say but don't just you know take it at face value take everything with a grain of salt cross check it with second opinions do your own research come to your own conclusions and that's a slow and very annoying process but it, there's no shortcut to it at all because there are you know in the way of authorities in the space but you'd be surprised just how many authorities are there by luck or have completely different differing opinions on certain things and are both completely valid and have have their arguments. So it's very hard for especially a newbie to come in and you know kind of figure out what's going on because it's all just chaotic. And uh, the only answer to that is one, you have to do your due diligence, and two, you need to you basically just need to do the education, onboard yourself, keep an open mind, but also stay highly skeptical about any of the claims you hear. So to switch gears a little bit, what are you working on currently that you're excited about? Some, perhaps you could expand on that. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm uh, working on a project locally here in Miami uh, with a guy named Ryan Brewer. And basically, we're working on uh, our own, I guess, layer two network for Bitcoin, you could say. And as I mentioned before, Lightning Network is considered a layer two application because it sits on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, we're building something called Peered. And that's a peer with a D at the end, P-E-E-R-D. And that's just a standard coder nomenclature for daemon, <laughs> if you're familiar. So, Dame, What's daemon? Daemon is just a, basically a program that runs in the background of the computer. Oh, and okay. and we chose that name because peer is meant as infrastructure. It's not going to be a consumer-facing app. It's something that's just going to be running the background. And at the end of the day, the user shouldn't really even know it's there. And what peer allows you is uh, to run a node in your browser. Oh, uh, using pure JavaScript and basically that means no native apps. So everything's in your browser like it would be for a website, except instead of connecting to a central server, it's connecting to all the other nodes in the peer network using a technology called WebRTC, which is a pretty new. And that allows just peer-to-peer communication between browsers just as uh, Bitcoin itself has peer-to-peer communication or torrents have peer-to-peer communication and so on. So what peer allows you to do is it's basically this layer on top of Bitcoin that makes building apps on top of Bitcoin uh, a lot easier and also build apps that are standalone from Bitcoin. And all these apps would be self-contained in a web browser, just like a website, and they would access uh, the Bitcoin network through uh, gateways, we're calling them, that are basically running both a peer node and a Bitcoin full node. And you can deploy uh, what we're calling DWAPs on there. And uh, DAPs, <laughs> of course, are decentralized apps, which Ethereum is famous for. 
DWAPs or decentralized web apps. And we DWAPs. think DWAPs. And we think that's something that's pretty novel that we haven't seen yet. Because right now, uh, the difference between the DWAPs that Peer will enable and the DAPs that Ethereum have, for example, is Ethereum does everything currently on-chain. And as we kind of mentioned before, on-chain is something that's, uh, I think, uh, and evidence points to, is highly unscalable. Because as soon as you have one app on there that's mildly successful, like CryptoKitties, you're hogging up the whole network and everything just comes grinding to a halt and, and you just can't have that. Blockchains aren't good at performance. They're good at censorship resistance and security, but not performance. That's like the last thing that they're good at. So you want to do things off-chain as much as possible. And DLAPs allow you to do that in the browser and just apps and push data for verification to the blockchain when you need to and to use uh, other nodes on the network as storage, as, which is kind of similar to like what IPFS does or Sia coin or storage. You just use different nodes and in the future, you'll be able to pay them for storing uh, information that's both private and publicly available. But also using a peer, you're going to be able to build side chains. If you want to run a dApp, it can be on a side chain, which is going to be, again, separate from the Bitcoin main blockchain. So if your app takes off and you have all this traffic on it, it's not clogging up the main chain. And it's not going to skyrocket fees either because it's proof of stake. And that's going to just be a lot more efficient in terms of if you're getting traction on your app, it's going to actually be scalable. And it's not only going to be scalable, it's going to be much more accessible because, again, this is all decentralized within a web browser. Nothing like this exists yet. Uh, DApps, you have to either be running a full Ethereum node or connecting to a node through an API point and trusting that node. And it's not all running within the browser. So it's a very, we think it's more scalable than DApps and more accessible just from the web component. And as a developer speaking, there's tons of web developers out there. There's, that's a huge market. So we're basically making tools that allow any kind of web developer to come into blockchain right away and just start building apps on it instead. And that's just a huge talent pool of people who would otherwise have to learn Solidity or something to build smart contracts that aren't going to scale anyway on Ethereum. So you just said a lot that I want to break down. Let's go deeper. Um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people only understood about half of that. Um, <laughs> or a third. Myself included. But uh, let's start with nodes. Yeah. So could you explain a little bit what a node is for people? Because I don't think most people in the audience know. What a node is. is just a, a network participant, right? So the way traditional websites work and traditional apps is you have the client and the server. And the client for an app is the app that you have downloaded on your phone. And uh, for a website, it's just your browser. It's what gets loaded in the browser. And the server is what we refer to as the backend. That's where all the logic is happening. That's where all the information is flowing to. It's a central point that's controlling everything and hooking everybody together, right? In a P2P network, in a peer-to-peer network like Bitcoin, you don't have that kind of relationship anymore. You don't have that. You can think of it as like a master control relationship almost. You have peers. You have people who are just sharing information and no one has like a hierarchy above the other. And they're just freely communicating with each other. Those peers are known as nodes. They can be referred to as nodes, peers. It's just someone who's on the network and connecting to everybody else in a decentralized way. Right. And so, these are different from full nodes correct? in the Bitcoin network, which are essentially an entire storage history of all of Bitcoin's history. It's, so, this we're talking about something completely different here when you say so nodes. So, pe- when I say nodes and talking about peer, I'm talking about peer nodes to, to be clear, right? right. So, there's Not, Bitcoin nodes, yeah. there's peer nodes, so it can get confusing. And uh, there will be some instances where people will be running peer nodes and not Bitcoin nodes. There will be instances uh, when I, I mentioned gateways before, which is what we're calling when someone runs a peer node and a Bitcoin node underneath that, which means they're able to access the blockchain directly. Otherwise, you have to go through node one of those. Squared. Yeah, node squared. Exactly. Stacks of nodes. St- node stack. Node stack. There we go. I'm going to actually steal that name. <laughs> <laughs> node stack. Stacks on stacks. <laughs> stacks on stacks. All stack. I ask is for 1%. 
He's like, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) 50 basis points, final offer. (laughs) Sounds like an ambitious project. I mean, where are you in? It does. It does. In a way, it is an ambitious project. uh, And on the other side of things, and I don't want to say too much just because stage-wise, we're very early. This is uh, something that we're planning on open sourcing uh, a bit at a time. In total, there's going to be five different libraries that compose this framework. Uh, that do different things and we're going to be open sourcing each library at a time. Uh, currently, the first one that's nearing completion for version one is the first library, which is just networking. It's a component that runs what we just talked about, the node uh, structure and communicating with peers and using WebRTC to do that. Uh, cut connections, find new peers, propagate data across the network uh, is what that library will be in charge of. And that will be going open source uh, within the next couple of weeks. And then from there, we'll just start onboarding uh, open source contributors, hopefully sourcing more devs, getting more momentum going. And uh, the aim is to have all the other libraries done and open source, at least V1 by end of year. I feel like I'm talking a little bit to like Vitalik in the early days where he had this grand vision of of (laughs) DAOs. But back then, people thought he was kind of crazy. And and actually, I I know an investor who got pitched by Vitalik to invest $100,000 and he turned him down. He's kicking himself every year. Of course. But he's like, I made as many good deals as I turned down good deals. So, he's like, whatever. I I can't worry about it. Yeah. Spilled Uh, milk, right? But at least we recognize, you know, the potential there that's that's there now, you know. This could be, uh, if it's as big as the the Ethereum DApp network, this could be... it should be even bigger potentially thanks to yeah, I would, access to uh, web I, developers. Right, of course. I would argue that it's going to be better in terms of the two things I said, scalability, like the Ethereum on-chain solution just doesn't work. We've seen that. And uh, basically what I'd like to see, and I was, this speaks to the sidechains I was seeing, saying earlier, is that sidechains are going to take the bloat off the main chain. And I think that's really going to be the way to go forward in addition to other layer two things in terms of scaling stuff. So, coupled with the fact that we're going to be able to tap into this huge web developer environment, we're hoping to see basically what happens when we take essentially a toolbox and just put it in the wild and see what people come up with and develop with it. And that could, I have honestly no idea how that's going to look like. And that's why I'm so excited about the project is because I really just want to put this out there and see what people come up with, get surprised with what people figure out how to do and uh, build on top of this network that uh, we're putting together. Now, for the the audience, they may not understand just sort of the larger project, the governance, the team structure. It's just that, for for example, you know, is this a a blockchain startup or is this more? Is you know, is it a pre launch? Is it is it going to do an initial coin offering? Sure, sure. Or is it just completely open source? And uh, this is like the early Apache project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? No, it really is. So yeah, this is a really just a complete open source project, which means there's no company or anything. It's just Ryan who is author of the white paper and the lead developer on this for sure, and just a couple other developers interested right now that we hope to grow out. And there's going to be no ICO, nothing of that sort. And this platform does not require its own coin. Uh, the entire premise of it is to utilize the Bitcoin blockchain for what it does best. And that's uh, data anchoring and payments and using leveraging the liquidity of Bitcoin inside chains like I've mentioned. And uh, yeah, there's you can build uh, your own tokens on top of this network just like you can ERC-20 tokens if you find a use case. But that's not what we're aiming for uh, mainly. What we're aiming for is to utilize Bitcoin to the biggest extent possible uh, with sidechains and to also just enable... Anyone to build a decentralized web app easily uh, using these tools and using the Bitcoin blockchain for data anchoring as well, which just makes sense because it's the biggest, it's the most secure, it's the most proven, and it tends to be the best for that. 
Right. I guess it would be useful to understand, you know, what the motivation of, of a developer who would participate in, in this kind of project. So this kind of speaks to Jimmy Sung's concern that the survival of this ecosystem is rested on whether we produce enough developers yeah. who, who yeah, are engaged, who are yeah. qualified, who give up their time. Because I heard something quite poignant about how blockchain, you know, from the early days have really depended on those who toil away through the nights and burn the midnight oil <laughs> out of their daily obligations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To work for like a better vision, right? And they're just yes. so passionate about building um, the bridge to the future. And part of a potentially a, a long-term concern is, you know, how, how do we create the kind of incentives sufficient for, for to developers? To make it sustainable, to, to, yeah. Yep. That's a good point. Up till now, it's really been driven just really by the passion, like you said, of a lot of individual people who just work tirelessly to get this stuff up. And that's one of the conundrums of the space is, uh, and that's set apart from previous examples, like I said, that it doesn't fit into this, you know, pre-existing box. Because before with like the internet, for example, you had the people who were in early and those people who are able to invest in the infrastructure profit later on because they're, they become the rent seekers, right? They become the ISPs. They become the Facebooks. They become, you know, the centralized providers that are taking advantage of this technology that you have to go through now, the gatekeepers, and they're able to make money off of that. So, there's a, there's a profit motive there that makes development on that side of things uh, very sustainable. With P2P, it's tricky though because the infrastructure that you're building is by definition and by design supposed to route amount around middlemen. So, you can't insert yourself in there without just someone taking your open source code, forking it and out competing you, right? So, it becomes very hard to uh, monetize in the same way as a lot of traditional companies. And uh, that's definitely, I, I think, something that a lot of companies in the space are trying to figure out and probably most will fail in terms of trying to figure that out. The ones who get it and find out the new way of making money in this kind of uh, landscape, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be the next Facebooks or Googles or or what have you, if we have them at all. We, we just really don't know how this is, uh, the space is going to develop when basically uh, the Lightning Network, for example, yeah, you have this network where you have a hub, but at any time, if someone doesn't want to use you, they can ride around you. They don't have to use you. There's no really monopolizing the infrastructure there because it's all supposed to be mesh network. It's all supposed to be P2P. And where the business side, the profit is there, it's questionable. I'm optimistic that people will figure it out, but I think it's just really early. And uh, people are trying to, you know, take what works in the past and applies it now. It's not going to work. And really, it's the people who figure out the novel, the novel business models with this new paradigm that we're kind of pushing in, who are going to be, you know, the next big thing for Silicon Valley hype. That kind of reminds me of, you know, there's there's been this whole like new form of fundraising through ICOs that kind of came out of the blue. And I don't think I certainly wasn't expecting that back in 2014. Like, no, uh, no one was. Yeah, it just all of a sudden, like, someone figured out that you could raise a bunch of money by creating <laughs> coins, which you know makes sense. But it was to jump from like that to like actually doing it. And now a bunch of companies are doing it, and right, although right. this doesn't really seem possible with your network because you're kind of linking one to one the coins that you, exactly that are going to exactly. be forked. So exactly. it's not really a new coin creation. There's no, a, there's no, a different no. economy. And again, like this is just a platform that anyone can you know use for anything. It's open, so you could set up nodes and set up a virtual chain where you're issuing 
uh, your own separate token for whatever reason, like whatever reason people come up with. But it's, okay, so you could you could on top of that, but I it's not need it's that. not yeah, but it's not needed to run the network itself. It's not needed right. inherently to for like gas to the Ethereum network. Yeah, or something. I asked more for like yeah. economic incentive for right or stuff. yeah, if you're trying to build like a coupon system on top of it or something, then yeah, yeah. you're making your own coin might make sense. We leave that open ended. Echoes are interesting in terms of uh, they basically open up a means to you know raise capital, of course, very easily. Uh, what people use that for, you know, at first and how well they're being conducted and so on is totally a completely different topic. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say about it is uh, if you're, you know, basically a startup stage group and you raise through an ICO $200 million or something, unless that's really frozen up and distributed over time in a very, you know, like there's no incentive there to work <laughs> when you've raised $200 million because honestly, it's like how much better are you going to do? There's no company and there's almost no companies that do that well when you look at all the companies that are started, right? So, if you, you know, what, write a white paper and build a nice front end and have like an MVP going and you make $200 million, there's some very bad incentives there for continuing to actually develop in the space. So, I see ICOs, you know, as an interesting experiment and they're definitely going to continue to evolve and mature, which would be nice to see. But right now, it's it's a huge huge mixed bag and probably complete mess behind the scenes in a lot of places i'm sure yeah having been involved with one i can see like uh, yeah it's freaking crazy and the unregulated aspects of it make it like right right it was honestly one of the craziest experiences i've ever been ever been through um yeah but you know i also see the other side of the equation with like tezos um on a previous episode we brought on a lawyer who uh who's actually suing we suing coinbase tezos kraken another one in there just everybody okay uh, connects but the reason you're seeing Tezos is because essentially the, uh, they're over-governed, which is interesting because they try to they try to get around this problem by having like a separate that was their whole profit and then yeah. that was their own downfall, yeah. which is kind of ironic. Yeah. So Yeah, th- their whole pitch was, you know, we're solving the governance problem that Bitcoin has and then yeah. they just had a worse governance problem. So, yeah, <laughs> they, had, they had a real-life governance problem <laughs> even though they, they theoretically had yeah, solved the yeah. code governance right, problem. Right, exactly. So, that was definitely maybe, a bit of, bit of irony there. Yeah, maybe they should have people. left the governance to uh, people <laughs> instead of their own yeah that's just internal a, players that's just one of the many hot messes green. in the space for sure yeah <laughs> we had so much hope for you <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get their act together i still have hope <laughs> hope away hope away <laughs> i'm just keep hoping seems like we have some time left is there anything else that you want to tell the audience or the audience uh, needs to hear when can people Hope to hear more about this project. It seems like it's a stealth mode. You know, what what are you releasing yeah. next? Yeah, it's definitely not stealth in that. Like, we're not. It's you know, this this is not a startup. There's no NDAs or anything. And at the end of the day, open source is about getting as many people on it as possible and tinkering and helping out. It's just super early, so we want to ship more code before actually getting out there and saying more. So probably when we release version one of the first libraries, when we're really going to get going in terms of community outreach. And uh, more information, putting articles out there about what we're building, what we're trying to do, uh, so we can get some more contributors to help us out. So, that's basically, you know, the project that I'm most excited about in the cryptocurrency space and actively working and contributing to. Uh, But more generally about crypto in general, uh, what I like to tell audiences is, you know, what I said earlier and just I I like to stress it is don't trust anyone. No one has everything 100% right and plenty of people have everything 100% wrong. So, including us, including us. Yeah. Including me. Let me be very clear about that. So, you know, nothing I give is investment advice or anything like that. I tell it how I see it. You know, I give uh, my two cents. I've been wrong before. I've been right plenty of times as well, though. So, you got to see got different opinions. Always keep learning. Stay humble and stay skeptical. More importantly, just always verify claims 
And, you know, you don't have time to verify every claim, honestly. Like, that's just people don't have that kind of economic time. But if you don't have time to verify a claim, recognize that's the case and don't buy into something just because your friend said it's the next hot shit or whatever. If you're going to be making any kind of financial commitments in the space, do your legwork. And honestly, the best and most rewarding part of the space isn't even the financial side of things. I think it's if once you start diving into technology, into the governance behind it and that theory and what we're bringing about, a lot of people get hooked. And that's not a bad thing. Just go down the rabbit hole, whatever part interests you, because there's there's plenty of ways to go about it. And uh, stay thirsty, my friends. (laughs) 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 This episode is brought to you by, uh, what's that from again? Stay thirsty, my friends. Oh, that's Dos Equis. Dos Equis, there you go. go. This episode is brought to you by Dos Equis. (laughs) (laughs) I expect my check coming in the mail on Dos Equis. I'll just adopt the title, Most Interesting Man in Crypto right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that won't get people to hate you. (laughs) (laughs) It'll definitely make people like you more. (laughs) All right, cool. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on, uh, Ariel. I think, you know, you had a lot of interesting stuff to say that I still think our audience is probably going to have to break down a little bit afterwards because you got into the developer heavy speak. and Yeah, yeah, it's hard to turn that off. And honestly, I think that's the best kind of content is when you're a little bit more uncomfortable. Definitely when I first got into the space, the stuff I reading, most of it was going over my head. And that's what made me want to push on and do my own research. And Again, that's what I encourage the audience to do. If you find anything of what I talked about, interesting peer to side chains, look into it yourself. There's a there's a whole wealth of information out there for you to explore. And uh, it just gets more and more interesting the deeper you go. And also, he's a writer, so you'll be uh, reading about Correct. this. So, take all the time you need to Correct. understand and break it down. Correct, exactly. So, I'm in the unique position of being one of the first contributors to something like Peered and also going to be the first person to probably write about it, (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting dynamic. And we get to be the first people to publish about it. Not if Dang beats you, though. Dang is writing the show notes about Peered. Ah, ah, So, ah. he might actually beat you. You got to write fast. (laughs) Okay, that's true. If Dang's on it, Dang's on it, you know, uh, points to you. If this turns into Ethereum, we'll uh, stick the flag that we got (laughs) to be the first podcast to bring on... uh, the peered originators do you call yourselves founders or you're since it's open source you just call yourself uh, we're just contributors and this is really uh ryan's baby in terms of this is something he's been cooking up for years in his head and uh the technology has just been really made possible to enable it in the last year or so with ebrtc maturing and but i'm definitely one of the first people on it and making contributions giving him feedback and we'll see where we take it from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. I think you've given people a lot to chew on. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find out? If you just go to Coindesk or Google my name, my Coindesk profile is the first thing to pop up. And uh, you can find all my articles there, which are all pretty in-depth pieces where I really try and distill a lot of information. Obviously, uh, in the written form, it's easier to distill and people to process and so on because you can just go at your own speed. Uh, also, I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter as well. Uh, if you Google my name and my handle there is not a Sith Lord and that's my handle everywhere. Not a Sith Lord is Correct. his handle. Not a Sith Lord. I couldn't add that's a That's exactly what a Sith would say. <laughs> <laughs> I make no comments. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. The podcast is hosted by Rob Peterson, Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Website created by Coco Lu and Kevin Van, and show notes and articles made by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. We're a new show, so the reviews really help us out a ton. You can also find us on Twitter at KeepItCryptic, that's K-E-E-P-I-T-C-R-Y-P-T-I-C.
You can also find us on Medium or Steemit at a bit cryptic, like the show name. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep it cryptic. <laughs>